Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series, hosted by the New Books Network, in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and the New Books Network partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Lakshata Malik, and today I'm joined by Dr. Durba Mitra, Assistant Professor as Studies in Women, Gender, and Sexuality at Carol K. Forsheimer, Assistant Professor at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University. We are in conversation about her book, Indian Sex Life, Sexuality, and the Colonial Origins of Modern Social Thought, published by Princeton University Press in 2020. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Mitra. Welcome, Durva. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, So I'm going to start first with just a question about how this project was conceived and how did you locate the prostitute as this uh, promiscuous category, if you will, that becomes a threat through various social science and natural science disciplines? That's great. Um, You know, this project was conceived in many in the ways that many uh, research projects uh, are, which is that it was a project that began in a totally different way with a totally different set of questions and then mutated over time because my archives demanded it. Uh, The project began, actually, I was a person who thought that I would go into medicine. I uh, started it as a project in the history of science and medicine, and I thought that I would do the social history of women in the 19th and 20th century in colonial India. Um, Over the course of my research, when I went into archives, I thought that I would do the social history of the many kinds of women who would be uh, deemed to be prostitutes or who went into prostitution in the 19th century, in part because there was such a wide scale medical regime that tried to regulate prostitution because of so-called venereal disease in the 19th century. But over the course of my research, I realized that I was asking in some ways the wrong questions. Rather than trying to write the social history, I came upon a set of methodological challenges. What did it mean to write about social life in 19th and 20th century Calcutta in the area that I was doing research? How could I imagine and think with the archives and the limitations of the archives that were in front of me? And so ultimately, the project changed, as projects tend to do. And as of over the course of the book, I made the book, rather than being a social history of the prostitute or prostitutes, it became a history of the concept of the prostitute. And rather than an account of just women who fell into prostitution, it became more broadly a project about how the prostitute as a concept actually shaped more broadly, the development of the modern social sciences in colonial and then post-colonial South Asia. So the book, Indian Sex Life, is an account of how ideas of what I call deviant female sexuality 
who are often named as prostitutes in an archive, became foundational to modern social theory, modern social thought in colonial India. Over the course of the book, I trace how European, American, Bengali social analysts made scientific claims about deviant female sexuality in the constitution of new fields of knowledge. I make visible a complex edifice of knowledge, that is to say, that saw deviant sexuality, deviant women's sexuality, as the primary way in which one could think and write about Indian society. Um, So over the course of the book, I look at a whole range of archives across genres, authorities, from philological studies, Indological studies that tried to find out answers for modern social life in ancient Indian texts, to legal studies, to medical and forensic medical textbooks on contagious diseases, on infanticide, on abortion. And then I turn to ethnological studies or studies in the modern social sciences that tried to understand the development of modern civilizations. And I end the book with a set of texts that supposedly testified to the truth of the prostitute, the so-called autobiography of the prostitute, and kind of come in with a skeptic's view of how we might reread these texts not, on, not as testimonies of real women, but really as part of a larger sociological project where men primarily tried to write about the experiences of women and womanhood. Right, right. No, thank you. And we'll touch on all of those themes uh, in a little bit. You said a lot and we'll, I'll, I'll pull on that a little bit. But one thing I found really interesting is that in the beginning of the text, you sort of start with this Rudyard Kipling text and, and sort of talk about the prostitute, quote-unquote, as someone who escapes knowability and is this unknowable thing person of some sort. Uh, What are the stakes and the context uh, that render the prostitute unknowable? And and how does this relate to the scientific fields that are so centered in knowledge and knowability? That's a great question. You know, Part of the difficulty of saying something is unknowable um, is not to say that we it isn't aspired to be known about, if that makes sense. So one of I, I begin with Rudyard Kipling's a very important short story on the city wall, which is published about a supposed woman. I mean, he never calls her a prostitute. But he says that she's a member of the most ancient profession in the world. And I begin that way because in some ways, and many of the writings on on prostitution begin with this kind of classic phrase, prostitution is the world's oldest profession. And I wanted to complicate that idea. The world's oldest profession in some ways implies what you ask, which is about the knowability about what prostitution is and who the prostitute is. And part of the intent of the book is to say that actually we don't know who the prostitute is, that if we disaggregate or take away the assumption that a woman who is called a prostitute is automatically a sex worker or involved in sexual commerce, that we can think about the movement of this concept across many domains of knowledge and how it actually came to encompass essentially every kind of woman um, in the 19th century. It was this kind of imminently flexible concept. It had it was mutable in the way that it could be filled and emptied of meaning over and over again. And I was interested in that project of creating a concept that was so flexible. What did that flexibility allow? And part of what I argue is that that flexibility allowed for 
people to make an argument about the nature of modern society as a whole and really make arguments for what it meant to study modern society. Um, and so thinking about knowability, part of the question is, what is it about the 19th century that makes people interested in the project of knowability in the first place? And as we know from a rich historiography on South Asia and comparative colonial context, knowability is a primary goal of the colonial state. How much can they know the society that they rule over? And how much can they then quantify, depict, create data to best control that society? And so the question for me was, rather than taking on that structure of knowledge that tells us that these women are knowable, how then can we complicate that? How, how can we dislodge the kind of epistemological dominance of colonial archives to say, what happens if we begin with this, begin this project by saying she's imminently unknowable? What is the story that we can tell? Right. No, thank you for that. I, I really like that idea or, or, or the way you talked about the flexibility and sort of emptying out of meaning that that does make a lot of sense in, in terms of knowability, unknowability centering. And, and that's something so interesting, something so unknowable makes it into a flexible thing to sort of center knowability. And, and that's, I think, fabulous. Um, one of the key things, of course, is to and, and that you mentioned in the very beginning, and we're going to talk about methods a little bit, is about uh, marginalized pasts that you mentioned and, and the difficulty of, of looking at marginalized pasts in texts and archives that are primarily not created uh, or, or produced by those marginalized people or peoples. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that, also because especially since the way you sort of locate prostitution is also with and the close links to criminality, right? So how do you read against it? Or how do you read that that dominant archive to locate subjects who are marginalized? Right. So I think the this came up a lot, you know, the question of method, I mean, and we'll come to it, I know, um, about how do we write about marginalized pasts? And one of the goals of the book is to, in fact, talk about the limits of what it means to write about it and the kind of ethical, moral goals that we have as scholars, as writers, to try to recuperate a marginalized past. What is the political claim that we try to make when we claim marginal subjects in our historical archives? And for me, you know, that claiming itself has a political mission, which sometimes is more complicated than we might imagine. And so I, I try to animate that those limitations, knowability, again, to go back to that question, and unknowability from what we can tell from an archive, um, every time I come up against it as a writer in my archives. So for example, in the second chapter, empirical chapter of the book, I look at legal archives and I look at cases of abortion and infanticide. I also look at the well-known Contagious Diseases Act. And I look at the particular set of cases, for example, a woman who um, appears before the courts in 1869, where she has been classified by the Contagious Diseases Act as a prostitute and policed by the local police in Calcutta, um, who say that she's a prostitute. And the only line of testimony that we get from her is that she says, I am not a prostitute. Um, however, as a marginal figure, it's difficult to write about her. She is named by the archive. So as a writer, how do I name her? She's described as Sukumani Rar, Rar or Rundi, Rar, 
um, implies a person who is a prostitute. Um, it, that's how it's translated. That's why she's marked that way by the colonial state. Um, and so how do I name her as a writer? So I can't, every time I came up against those difficulties, those challenges, I tried to play it out for the reader. It comes up again in the chapter that I describe as circularity, which describes the circular logic that dominates these archives, that links female sexuality to deviance, links deviance to the medicalization of the body, and then link and uses that evidence of the body then to testify to women's sexuality and their deviance. And in that chapter, I began with um, an autopsy report of a woman who's named in the archive as Kali Bewa. And she's named that way, um, again, by the archive. And Bewa, which is a kind of colloquial Persian term, which means widow, you know, was that in fact her name? Was that the archive naming her, right? So one in one rar, in one case, she's described as Rar or, or as a prostitute by the archive, by the colonial state. In the second, she's described as a widow. Um, and so, you know, even the name itself is up for critique and scrutiny. And I kind of talk about the limits of what it means to use an autopsy report, the body of a dead woman, which is supposed to do a certain kind of work. Uh, archivally. That is to say, it testifies pedagogically to what we're supposed to learn from the body. What does it then mean to use that body to elucidate a person's life? When that life has only been elucidated for the purpose, as you describe, uh, for the purpose of criminal law, for the purpose of determining that she's in fact a criminal. And for me, that's a limited arc, uh, that's a limited project that we, that seeking, you know, complete recuperation or agency from a woman like who dies allegedly of an abortion is in fact to sidestep the violence that probably very likely organized her life and certainly organized her presence in an archive. And so part of what I try to do over the course of the book is lay out when I struggle as a writer to imagine the marginal subjects who come before me in an archive. And to play out that really these are epistemological problems that speak to the modern social sciences, to modern social thought itself, and that tell us much more about modern social thought than the marginal lives. But cumulatively, over the course of the book, what you get a sense of is very much the patriarchal forms of domination that organize women's lives, the violence, the practices of surveillance, the way in which women are scrutinized from everything from whether they menstruated. Um, you know, in one case, I describe how the dobi or the washerman is supposed to actually pay attention to whether a woman has menstruated to determine whether she may be pregnant outside of wedlock. So that those, you know, over the course of the book, there should be a kind of cumulative feeling of the difficulty and struggles that women faced, but also the difficulty and struggles that I faced as a writer trying to account for those lives. Right, right. No, thank you for that. And 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 yeah, it, I think that comes through in your book at various points. You visualize that struggle of reading the sort of dominant archives and reading marginal subjects and marginal histories into these uh, dominant archives. And one of the things that you also mentioned and sort of surveillance, right, or or and governance and all of these and governance specifically intimate lives of, of women uh, in question, rain sort of. It's it's it comes up again and again. It's a reigning theme, and one of the 
interesting things was it's not just governance by or, or surveillance by colonial authorities, but there is sort of this interaction, iterative sort of process where the local and the native elite are also invested in this surveillance, right? And, and this governance. So it's kind of happening also at the state level, but also at a non-state level that how I don't know if you'd call it governance or surveillance, but does that feed into it? And what's the dynamic of this sort of dual or or spread out surveillance in a way, right? So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, part of so much of what I account for is the way in which female sexuality, women's sexuality becomes the primary domain through which the colonial state is actually able to enter everyday life in um, in colonial Bengal. And one of the things that I argue actually in the second chapter, which is called repetition, is that it's actually through the concept prostitute and more broadly ideas about women's sexuality that the state is able to intervene in everyday life. But it's not only intervening in everyday life, it's doing exactly what you described. It's creating new infrastructures and institutions that are based in the reorganization of Indian society itself along caste lines, along patriarchal structures, along communal imaginations of Hindu dominance and Muslim minoritization, um, where the state empowers certain kinds of people to create knowledge alongside the state in the service of the state. And so, for example, I look at a survey from 1872 of, of across the state of Bengal, um, on whether a woman was a prostitute and what kinds of behaviors constituted the category of the prostitute. And one of the kind of important figures in there is a deputy magistrate, Bunkum Chatterjee, who of course we know later goes on to be a very famous famous novelist, perhaps one of the most famous novelists from Bengal in the 19th, 20, uh, 19th century. Um, at that time, a deputy magistrate, where he was actually developing a lot of his ideas. And he does this, he writes this very, very long handwritten letter that I actually have a visual of in the book, um, detailing the many types of behaviors that he equates with prostitution, from Kulin Brahman polygamy, that is to say, the highest uh, subcast of Brahmins who... Um, who had polygamous practices where multiple women married one man, calling those women prostitutes to widows, to low caste dasi or the so-called women who are working in the household. And so what you're describing is exactly right, right? Which is that there's a kind of collusion that happens in terms of the governance, governance structures and authority. And I described the dobi as another kind of way in which the state reorganizes social practice in the, pra- in the service of state surveillance. But one of the things that I think, you know, the book overall tries to make an argument for is that there's a collusion more broadly, and this goes, you know, a really important argument in feminist historiography of South Asia, between colonial state practices and the reorganization of patriarchy in, um, in Indian society and in, in Bengali society. That is to say that there is an opportunity with the entrance of colonialism for upper caste, largely Brahmin, Hindu men to grab authority. And that becomes critical to the practice of knowledge in the 19th and early 20th century. So the book is not only, as you say, about colonialism or the colonial state, but is fundamentally and very critically about structures of power, structures of knowledge that live long after the end of colonialism in the reorganization of Indian society along 
um, caste practices, patriarchal lines. But that, I mean, this kind of gets to, I think, an ongoing debate that's happening in historiography now. It is not only a reorganization, it is also the crystallization, especially of dominant castes um, that happens during the 19th century, but caste practices and patriarchal practices that had, of course, long existed before colonialism. And so one of the things that I try to point out is that many of the practices that we're describing of surveillance, of governance, of these kind of everyday banal governance over women's bodies, over menstruation, um, that those practices actually are obscured in the social sciences. And so especially by by Bengali elites, by Brahmins, what we find is that upper caste social scientists name that uh, practice of surveillance, that practice of governance, that practice of creating knowledge that is to the detriment and subordination of women as objective social science. And so that's another kind of key argument that I make over the course of the book is that there is a, a massive reorganization of society around heterosexuality and monogamy. There is the crystallization of caste and Hindu supremacist projects that were there long before the coming of colonialism. And that those practices, the crystallization, the reorganization of society around monogamy are all obscured in the making of a so-called objective social science. Right. No, thank you for that answer. That was that was great. And and I mean caste is something that comes up again and again in the text, in in whatever ways the archives allow and and then you sort of traverse not just through colonial archives, but also these autobiographies, which I'm going to get to in a minute as well. But there seems to be a fundamental, maybe not a shift or or at least a reorganization of ideas of not just womanhood, but also manhood uh, that happened around this time, right? You talk about the Colleen uh, Brahmin figure, especially sort of comes in, in in that sort of category. And, and how does this relate to how does these new ideas of womanhood and manhood or masculinity and femininity femininity relate to ideas of female deviance, how caste and class play out? And this supposes sort of also new division of space, right? The private and the public space being sort of these distinct spaces of governance and who gets to govern which space and who gets authority in what space and and uh, because the term that's also sort of uh, you use in the text is public women sort of there are there are a number of these words that are, and, and phrases that are used in lieu for the prostitute or uh, uh, or or any number of ways to describe uh, deviant female sexuality so i was uh, i was wondering if you could reflect on that a little bit with us absolutely these are I'm, it's such a privilege to answer these questions you know, the question of masculinity is one that I think ever since Mernalini Sinha's very definitive book on masculinity in the 19th century and effeminacy, um, I think is one of the key contributions of feminist studies to thinking about Indian history. And one of the things that I find in studying the social sciences, because that's my object of knowledge, is that as you describe, caste is massively being reorganized, not only the way in which social science becomes a new way to condemn lower caste people, particularly lower caste and outcast women, but also it becomes a way of reorganizing caste mobility. And in the case of Bengal, that happens particularly through the Kulin Brahman castes, who are, as I described, you know, the highest subcaste within Brahmins, uh, within Brahmins in the 19th century, 
but they are slowly being marginalized over the course of the 19th century. So in the last chapter of the book, which is called Veracity, I explore that at length in part to make an argument about the fact that the discourse that critiques women for prostitution is actually used by social reformers in the 19th century and early 20th century, and of course the colonial state, to make an argument against Kulin polygamy. Um, and so actually makes an argument against the Kulin line within Brahmanism um, and against polygamous practices that allow the kind of what they, what H.H. Uh, H. Risley describes as hypergamy and allows for caste endogamy to continue. And one of the reasons that I point that out is because, you know, for the example, the Kulin man is described basically as trafficking himself for the sake of marriage dowries. And so for the sake of money, he marries multiple people. That's one of the major critiques that Bengali non-Brahmin reformers make against Kulin Brahminism. And so we see that, that the kind of reorganization of caste is happening up and down along, you know, up and down the hierarchy of caste practices. But it's happening along masculine, the lines of critiquing and asking what is masculinity now? And one of the things that you see over the course of the book is that by the 19th century and early 20th century, in the social scientific discourses, whether it's Indology, whether it's the practices of um, ethnology, that is to say the 19th century science of the comparison of civilizations, masculinity is increasingly projected as a very fragile institution. And it's not only fragile, it's one that's seen as aspirational. One has to protect it. One has to reimagine it. One has to create all kinds of institutions, be it marriage, be it getting uh, low caste women out of the household from their, you know, servant status. Uh, that there are all of these practices that should be there to create safety for men. Um, so, for example, in the Indological literature, which I explore in my first chapter on origins, you know, there is extensive discussion about a woman's menstruation, and one of the you know, key points is that in these texts written by Bengali social scientists in the first decades of the 20th century, they often describe even the highest caste woman who's menstruating as essentially a Dalit woman. Um, and they use derogatory terms to do so and say, essentially, when a woman is menstruating, she's the lowest form of animal. She essentially eats human flesh. I mean, it's, it's crude in some ways how they describe a woman who's menstruating. And that kind of crudeness speaks to the way in which women are perpetually cast as dangerous and men are perpetually cast as in need of not only protection, but in need of a kind of institutionalization that allows them to fulfill their masculine form. Um, you asked finally about the question of the private and the public, again, a really key theme in South Asian historiography. One of the key points in the book is to, to say that there is the English concept or category of prostitute. And then there's a whole wide range, really hundreds of terms in Bengali and Sanskrit. If you look at other uh, Indian language traditions in Urdu, for example, that come to be understood as prostitute, that by the late 19th and early 20th century in a dictionary would be translated as prostitute, but actually indicate a relationship to the home. So as you described, you know, that, that the many words that mean prostitute in Bengali, often Sanskrit derived, 
or get used in the 19th and early 20th century imply a woman who has, you know, has access to many men or who lives in public or who is outside of the caste group or outside of the line or outside of the home. And that question of spatial proximity was something that was really interesting to me um, over the course of the book. What is it about space? So if masculinity is this kind of really fragile thing, then space is also something that is being perpetually redefined. And masculinity is in a public space, and that public space is in, under perpetual threat, uh, according to these discourses. Right. No, thank you. That that Thank you for answering that question. Um, yeah, I mean, the other question that I was really interested in, and this is coming back to method again, is the question of autobiography, right? Uh, I can... It's, it's an interesting sort of side, but, but almost sometimes get experience, sort of gets sort of categorized as experiential truth, something that you can't critique, something that you can't engage with at some level. How do you take something like that, right? A text like an autobiography and then center it uh, to understand uh, it as an analytical site and something that can theorize, but also something you can engage with at, at a more analytical level. Absolutely. I think, I mean, you're pointing out something that I think is really critical, which is those texts or ideas that we designate as experiential, and then we kind of sometimes quarantine them, to use a term that we're talking maybe too much about recently, quarantine <laughs> them outside of the realm of critique. And one of the things that I try to do in the last chapter of the book in Veracity is ask, why is it that we seek truth in a text like an autobiography, a so-called autobiography, a text that claims autobiographical knowledge? Um, in that chapter, I begin with the question, why do women become prostitutes? And I ask that question because that seems to be the, you know, over the course and looking over many, many types of archives, that is the question that the archive that scholars, that historians, but also in the time, newspapers, sociologists, you know, doctors all asked at the time of women, including women themselves. And so the question of why is this kind of dominant narrative form? Why would a woman fall into prostitution? And the answer comes in the form of a proliferative genre that emerges in the early 20th century of the so-called autobiography. There is a range of texts that are published in the beginning, from the beginning of the 20th century of, of so-called women writing autobiographies of the fallen woman or the prostitute. And in the last chapter, I critique that, you know, the self-evident reading of those kinds of texts, in part because there's kind of substantial evidence historically in terms of archival evidence that the great majority of those so-called autobiographies were in fact not written by women who were engaged in prostitution, but also because the question is really what is it that the readership demanded from the first person? Why is it that the autobiographical or the testimonial comes to genre-wise have so much significance? And the answer really is that, in my view, there is a way in which the first person testifies to the truth of a society, the underbelly, the hidden, dark nature of a society. But as you start to look at this genre over the course, like you look at the genre as a whole, you look at more than one text at a time, what you see is that there's a kind of, there are generic tropes to it. 
That is to say, a great majority of these stories of a woman falling into prostitution and then rising out of prostitution, um, that a great majority of the stories tell the same story. How a woman fell, you know, became weak with sexual desire, how she was unintentionally taken advantage of, how she couldn't help but adhere to her own sexual whims. And then she falls into prostitution. Prostitution leads to the massive degradation of her body. And then at the end of the story, we hear about how the woman is redeemed. Either she's redeemed by becoming an ascetic, going to Benares, um, becoming essentially equivalent to a widow, completely socially dead in some ways, one, a woman who has no access to pleasure or desire, or alternatively, in many of these stories, she dies. And so part of what I try to explore over the course of the chapter is why is it that a woman's death is seen more honorable, seen as more honorable than her living? What is it about women's death that is such a fantasy for so many readers in the early 20th century? And what does it mean that we think about women's death with such fantastical moral imaginations? What does that say morally about how we perceive women who are living? Right. No, that that was excellent. I really like the idea of sort of looking at the narrative structure of not just one, but also looking at many autobiographies, right, in the historical moment in which they're produced. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And just going off of the last theme of death, which uh, I was really fascinated by your sort of recurring sort of theme of death, both literal and metaphorical, not just of the woman, but this idea or, or this sort of image of the funeral pyre that is associated with women and and especially women being in these vulnerable positions and and there is something about the relationship of the woman with the funeral pyre that sort of relates to this question of uh, deviance and deviant female sexuality and i'm wondering if you could reflect on that a little bit absolutely that's in some ways the theme that emerged as i wrote and rewrote and rewrote this chapter was the funeral pyre. And, you know, that there's no way to write about that imagery or that imagination uh, without, of course, thinking about sati in the 19th century in Bengal. And one of the things that I point out is that a hundred years after, you know, that I'm talking about a period in the late 19th and early 20th century, that decades after the supposedly abolition of sati and the outlawing of sati under the colonial state, and also, you know, the incitement to discourse, as we would say, in the early 19th century about sati, that the imagery endures, the question of a woman dying endures, and it appears again and again and again in this writing. Um, and what I say in the book is one is left with countless dead women who appear again and again in the pages of texts across these fields of knowledge. Sati is the original site of the colonial imagination of Indian social life and continued to be a contentious, contentious idea through the 20th century. But the new sciences of society, the sexually deviant woman stood in contrast to the chaste sati. She's never immolated in rites of chastity and sanctity. Rather, her remains are instead desacralized through the lens of modern social science. They appear again and again across the colonial survey, the textbook, the popular chapbook. And over the course of the book, you see many kinds of women put on different kinds of pyres. But one of the things that I try to point out is that how is the autopsy table different than the funeral pyre? How can we imagine the photograph 
of the you know funeral pyres, which then circulated as the postcard, different than the funeral pyre itself. And for me, what you find over the course of the of these many different archives is that female sexuality ultimately always is rendered in an imagination as death. Where is she to die? And in not only death, but in and this gets to the funeral pyre specifically as the spectacle of death. That we have we as a as readers, we as viewers of a postcard, for example, we as thinkers have to view, have to bear witness to her death in order for her to be sacralized at all. And I think that for me speaks to what I describe very early on the book in the book as a contempt for women. I wanted to kind of think of it as a mood. What is it? Why do we have such contempt for women that we all want to bear witness to a woman's death rather than bear witness to her life? Yeah, no, that was really powerful. And I'm so thankful that you sort of brought this up in the chapter and have engaged uh, with this question right now. And and I really also now shift gears a little bit. Uh, the afterword was really interesting to me and I was it was wonderful reading because you juxtapose this sort of idea of um, the prostitute and deviant female sexuality in some ways with the feminist thought that's quote-unquote feminist thought that's developing around the same time, right? In the uh, late 19th, early 20th uh, century. Uh, and you talk about Hussein Sultana's dream, for instance, which a lot of people have cited as one of the earliest sort of science fiction feminist texts. And I'm wondering how you sort of uh, constructed that afterward and what your thought process was in sort of placing it in the text where it was. Absolutely. Um, this afterward was... I mean, everyone will say this, but it's always difficult to write. Mm-hmm. But it was particularly difficult to write because I couldn't, I didn't have an answer to how to end a book about the kind of profound contempt, subordination of women that happens over the course of the development of the modern social sciences. And what I wanted to ask was, in some ways, why is it that we give so much authority to the modern social sciences? So, at the end of the book, I think forward to the proposition that places the control and erasure of women's sexuality at the heart of modern social theory. I return to that well-known story, as you describe, written in Kolkata in 1905 by Rokia Sakawat Hussein um, in Sultana's Dream, which many of the I, many of you will be familiar with. In that story, she narrates a woman, Sultana who, while thinking about the so-called condition of Indian womanhood, lapses into a dream and emerges with a clear vision of a distinctly alternative world that she calls Ladyland. Ladyland is a place where women reign supreme, while men are socially secluded in the home. The story ends with Sultana suddenly waking up from the dream, and she's actually secluded inside her own home. I end a book about modern social science with this curious story about the dream of Ladyland. And I ask in some ways, what, what, if anything, do dreams have to do with modern social science or modern social scientific study? Sultana's dream is not the first dream that we see in the book. And that's one thing that I point out is that we actually see the dreams and fantasies of many kinds of writers, people like S.C. Mukherjee, people like Bankam Chatterjee, who narrate the decline and fall of so-called Hindu society as the result of unbridled female sexuality. Um, in, in those dreams, 
I kind of juxtapose those dreams, the social scientist dream, the man who is a social scientist, to the dream of Rokia Hussein. And I, in juxtaposing them, I ask, why is it that certain texts, why is it that the texts of people who, are, who claim the domain of social science, legal texts, medical textbooks, evolutionary textbooks, get to claim the domain of science, of social science, while Rokia Hussein's Lady Land is seen as a fantasy or speculative fiction? What if instead we were to see a social scientific text with its many footnotes, its claims to expertise, its claims to objectivity as a kind of speculative science fiction? Um, it is then, for me, when we would find how speculation, a kind of fiction, governs the forms of reasoning where social theorists always look to female sexuality to explain problems in society, how they used footnotes on primitive sexuality of women that filled more prose than the book itself, that elaborate on questionnaires, who is the prostitute, who is the prostitute, that created an ideology of women's sexual deviance that was, as we said, flexible, that could be used to explain everything that could be wrong in society. So over the course of the afterward, I ask, why does one get to be claim, what claimed the domain of science when one another is seen as fantasy? And what are we saying about the fantasies that we have? And what does it mean to not call the other one a fantasy? And then at the end of the book, I, I write a sentence that took me a very long time to write. And I wrote and rewrote. And I say, ultimately, no longer enchanted with the future promised to us by the sciences of society, we realize that the fact of deviant female sexuality is a grievous mistake. And... I wrote that sentence in part because early on in the book writing process, I decided that the rasa of the book or the mood or aesthetic of the book was going to be something that was adbut. That is to say, I wanted the reader to feel disoriented. I wanted the revelation of the book at the end to make the reader question everything that had come before that they had taken as commonsensically scientific or commonsensically social science. And so the end of the book purposely tries to pull the rug in some ways from under the reader to say, actually, everything that I've accounted for you, everything that I've said to you about the modern social sciences is a fiction, is a fantasy. And that fantasy has real world consequences. And maybe the first step in undoing that fantasy is to say, that there is no such thing as female sexual deviance in the first place. Right. No, I really like the juxtaposition of fantasy uh, and truth and, and whose fantasies get to become truth and whose fantasies get to remain fantasies. And and, and that I think that's a wonderful note to sort of uh, place towards the end of the text. And, and, and thank you so much for sort of joining us, Dr. Mitra, and for all of your insights. Um, my name is Lakshita Malik, and this discussion of Indian sex life, sexuality, and the colonial origin of modern social thought, published by Princeton University Press in 2020, has been brought to you by New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you so much for listening.